0: You remember that old joke about put it in a Beowulf cluster that used to be the go-to line for, like, every Linux
1: user ever? That's kind of died off, hasn't it? You don't happen that much. Well, I think it's because Amazon provides them for you in the cloud. You just have to pay them. The Beowulf cluster
0: was this go-to way to cluster a bunch of machines together. Um, But, you know, also, Wes, like, you could just put a bunch of CPUs in a system and then just design the workloads to spread across a farm, I suppose. Maybe that's why the Raspberry Pi... Cluster eh? might just be the ideal candidate for some. It's a new system that lets users pack up to five Raspberry Pi Compute Module 3s into a single compact, relatively low cost, power efficient
1: computing cluster. Yeah, the Mini Nodes Raspberry Pi 3 carrier board is designed to house multiple CM3 boards for carrying out computation at the so called edge of the network. For instance, building automation, running a monitoring station, uh, things like smart traffic lights in a city. The network connectivity is provided by an integrated
0: gigabit switch to connect all of them together. So that's pretty nice. Um, And it feeds five boards, which are also like uh, five awesome
1: Raspberry Pis that have gigabit connections. That's really nice. (laughs) Yeah, they've also got uh, four gigs of flash storage. Looks like no Wi-Fi or Bluetooth at the moment, though. Uh decent, decent processor, one point two gigahertz quad core, as you probably would expect.
0: Okay, so prices—it's uh, two fifty nine for uh, the
1: board, and then each Raspberry Pi compute mo- module is thirty bucks. Yeah, if you look at it, I mean, it is like a bigger board, and you just sort of slot these other little Pi boards right into it. Now we could have a Beowulf cluster of Raspberry Pis.
0: I don't you know, this is for all that for all that edge, all that edge work that you need
1: your Raspberry Pis to do. I was thinking maybe if you're build you're using Raspberry Pis, maybe you want a little build farm at home. Well, the, there you go. I feel like we need to have a committee. Um, and that Jupiter
0: broadcasting maybe should form it. And then we can vote if we're gonna allow terms in. Like we should have had a vote on hybrid cloud and we should have a vote on edge devices. Because like you read this article and it makes my skin crawl. Here's just one paragraph edge computing is becoming increasingly common in situations where IoT sensor data needs to be processed with low latency or in near real time, or it needs to be handled locally for regulatory reasons. (laughs) Edge computing is just another way of saying electronics devices, right? It's just another way of saying devices that are in the consumer's home or in the end destination. An edge device... Is just something that is network
2: connected out on the edge. I don't like this term at all. It doesn't. It, it kind of. It, it kind of separates between the the compute device that's 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 you know batching and processing this data and the data the the sensor, which could be an Arduino or some other low end like microcontroller device so for example there was a, a company that were doing a thing where they have uh, cameras in elevators and they were um, taking pictures of people in the elevator and then using some intelligence to scan the picture and figure out if it looks like the person was a bad guy from the I don't know the look of their face or um, facial recognition or it looked like they may have a gun under their clothes or something, or if they get the gun out or something so it could see that oh. but the, the, the thing that that's connected to the camera doesn't have the compute power to do that and if you had multiple elevators in a building you'd have multiple cameras feeding into an edge device that had the compute capability to do that so right. there's certainly you've got to have some term for the thing that's doing the compute that isn't the device that's at the very very end of the line here's where
0: i think the the like the line should be is if it's in your network on their premises, you could consider that the very edge of your LAN or your WAN. You could consider that to be the edge of your network. But if the device that you are communicating with is on a separate network, that's not an edge device. That's just a a node on the internet. That is just an internet node. It's not an edge device at that point. I grok that it could be a sensor collecting data, transmitting it back to a larger processing system. But if they're on separate networks, I feel like edge device is, it's a dumbification of the term. Although all of that said, I did get a tweet this last week from an elevator where that elevator was doing
1: a file system check. So I don't know what to call that. (laughs) Chris, I think you should just think about it like this. You got to have devices to funnel data to your blockchain-based machine learning platform to analyze it. Nailed it. This
0: is Linux Unplugged, Episode 278 for December 4th, 2018. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's all over the world this week. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Mr. Payne. Good to be connected with you. I am in Dallas for uh, well, for some shenanigans that you're actually about to join me for in just oh, yeah. uh, a couple of days. We're going to have our company party now that we're part of Linux Academy. Very excited about that. But We've put together a show this week that really looks back and pulls out the best bits. We've got some great community news that we're going to go through here towards the top of the show. A fascinating look at Android in the cloud. It is actually a thing. And then I had a chance to chat with the developer of Ish. ISH, you might be familiar, is a Linux shell for iOS and the developer is hard at work at implementing an entire Linux environment that iOS users can use. And so far, Apple hasn't pulled the plug. I'll talk to him about that, why he's doing it. I wanted to find out too if he was like a Linux diehard that was trying to bring Linux to iOS or if he was an iOS diehard trying to learn about Linux. So we talk about that and more. A follow-up on some crazy issues I've had with my laptop after connecting that GPU-powered dock And you might run into it as well. In fact, it it impacts more than just GPUs. And then we'll take a little deep dive into Clear Linux, which has been making more and more news recently, and just refresh their desktop offering. You could say double down on the desktop offering. And uh, Wes is going to kick the tires, and I did a deep dive on the technical side of things. And we'll be taking a look at Clear Linux towards the end of the show. But before we go any further, we have one bit of business we must attend. We must bring in that virtual lug. Time appropriate. Greetings, Mumble Room. Morning. Morning.
3: Right, howdy, howdy.
0: Hello. Hello, Bruce and Popey and Sean and the Silent Drifter. All of Mr. our Wimpy. friends. It's good to see you. Yeah, it is nice. We have a few up in uh, quiet listening and in staging as well. The mumble Room's cool because you could just listen in the in the mumble room, and then you get like the raw, untapped or I don't even know what the unfettered studio feed because it's you know connected to our soundboard. Oh, Anyways, yeah, yeah. I know that I was gonna make that sound really cool, and then I just realized it's not that cool. It's just an audio interface that plugs into our soundboard. But at the <laughs> end of the day, it is. I should make it sound like the raw direct feed from the studio mixer. That's pretty good, right? That was That's great. way more hype. Thank you. Thank you. All right, well, let's start with some community news. A story that I'm a little grumpy about. Uh, and I didn't I didn't want to be I I didn't want to be. I I wanted to be the guy that came on the air and said I, I think it's time, you know, it's been 10 years, it's time. But I can't. Um, and I understand though. It's just what it is. The, the the world's moving on and Zubuntu is one of them and it's official that uh Zubuntu will stop producing 32-bit ISOs beginning with 1904. The development team has now decided to go ahead and eliminate the 32-bit builds moving forward. The change will affect Ubuntu 19.04 and beyond, but not the current 18.04
1: LTS. Yeah, the developers announced this this morning following a team vote. Interestingly, it was a 6 out of 10 vote, so clearly not, you know, it wasn't unanimous. There's still people out there representing 32-bit. I would imagine especially in the in the Ubuntu following. This leaves LXDE or cute as the only Ubuntu desktop distribution still offering 32-bit images moving forward.
0: And there's just no way that's sustainable. The, that, that puts all of the work uh, for testing, for all of that, for building, all on, on, on that project. And um, it's not a focus of the project. The project uh, has, Lubuntu has stated, they want to focus on more modern hardware. Now... The common meme here is that 32-bit processors haven't shipped since the Pentium Four, but the reality is they have shipped as recently as 2011. And I grant you that's not yesterday, but it's also true; it's not 10 years ago. And um, I, I don't know. I hate. I hate to see. I hate to see something that seems to have a well-defined purpose to facilitate really good performance on hardware that is maybe be it wouldn't be worth a YouTube video. You know, it's maybe maybe it's not a thread ripper. Maybe it's maybe it doesn't have the latest and greatest GPU and the latest and greatest CPU. Maybe it's
1: God forbid, even running spinning rust discs. Maybe. Isn't that where Where, like, ARM is now, though? Like, shouldn't, if you just have an old 32-bit processor, shouldn't you just get a nice ARM chip and probably have a better (laughs) time? And we should have distributions focusing on that. Because, like, Zubuntu has its own things outside of that, right? I mean, you can have a lean and mean Zubuntu desktop on just about... Any system, not yeah. 32-bit, going forward. I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah, You're right. I guess. I guess if you have, you're saying if you have a system that old, you could almost just go get a cheapo ARM box.
1: That said, I mean, I do, appre- I do appreciate it because one of those things Linux has been like. It feels like there has been this part of our culture where it's like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's super old Mac. Okay, we'll put Linux on it. Wh- whatever system you have, you could put Linux on it. And some of that's fallen away. True. Yeah. And and I think part of it for me is. Um,
0: this is this is something that these distributions were serving. Like, they were they were super serving a specific type of user base. Like, that was the role they played. And it, it made room for other distributions to go hog wild in other areas. Um, but, you know, that's just my thoughts on it. Wimpy, I would obviously love to hear your thoughts, not only as an a Ubuntu Mate uh, maintainer, but also uh, just having years of experience with ranges of different hardware and distributions.
4: Yeah, so... We obviously made this decision, or rather, I had the final decision for Ubuntu Mate to end uh, the 32-bit Intel support, and basically that came down to the fact that there weren't the people within the team that had the hardware to test and QA this stuff. You know, so yes, whilst there may well be devices that have been produced as little ago as seven years that have that instruction set and that processor, um, you've got to have people out there that are using it that are maintaining the distribution and Wes is also quite correct that for Intel 32-bit systems of that era the ARM platforms these days offer competitive performance and are inexpensive by comparison and just because Ubuntu Flavor is not supporting 32-bit Intel as a release architecture anymore. doesn't mean that the sky is falling. There are dozens and dozens of distributions out there that cater to supporting these, you know, what are becoming niche hardware platforms and specialize in that. And I don't think any of us would be saddened to see owners of that hardware go to those niche distributions where they can be well supported. Sure,
0: I guess I, I can't disagree with that. Um, you're right. It's not um, it's not like there's not somewhere else for these uh, users to go. But um, what is the role then of Zubuntu and Lubuntu? I guess if their main advantage is that they have XFCE or LXQt, I don't know if that seems like enough of a differentiator. You can get that anywhere, like. The focus is sort of what made it a go-to. Like it put them in a channel for a particular type of user, where th- the randos on the internet would filter people into that channel when they're looking for something. Like it, it was a in a way, it was part of their brand. And now the main thing about their brand is going away. I, I don't mean to dwell. I want to give Poppy a chance to jump in too.
2: I don't think it's the main thing about their brand. It's a factor that you could it, that would help you decide which ISO you were going to download if you had that old crusty laptop and you wanted to run software on it, sure. But what I find frustrating is whenever we announce the the death or uh, depreciation of something, um, mm-hmm. people come out of the woodwork and tell us uh, we should continue working on this thing. Uh, and I'm sorry, but you don't get to tell us what we work on. If you want to work on it, you could volunteer some of your time to work on it as well. Like, mm-hmm. there are plenty of people out there who will um, wring their hands when something is is no longer supported, but they won't step up and help when people put the call out for it, and I find that incredibly frustrating. If you're if you're not going to do anything about it, then shut
4: up.
0: Yeah, I could, and that is sort of um, a, a definite. Uh... It's not the it's not the friendliest answer, but it is definitely a legitimate answer in the open source world. It's like, well, the source is there if you wanna if you wanna do the work, you you can do that work. Uh, and um, like I say, I think for the most part, it it has been a really long time and the market has moved on, and the people that are running 32 bit probably don't have to. I've said that before on this show. It's they don't they likely don't have to. But it still seems to me like um you know, it's like in, in the world of cars. When you have a car maker that that has something in their cars that makes them special, when they stop doing that thing, uh, it it just sort of takes something from it. Mr. Drifter, I want to give you a chance to jump in, and then perhaps we will move on. What do you think?
3: Well, I agree with Popey. I think that it's there's a lot of responsibility on the community to get in and and kind of start maintaining those things because I mean, there's only so much space, even in you know large corporate offices, to put. All of these old crusty machines, and it's it's kind of hard to maintain it. But uh, you had mentioned, uh, or at least asked the question, you know, what would we use? You know, what is the use case then for these like XFCE and you know these desktops for sixty-four bit? And I think that you know when you go on there and you just need essentially kind of a jump box or something with that doesn't take a lot of resources. That I still think that these different distributions are going to really excel in those areas.
0: Right, and. I think at the end at the end of all of this discussion, you have to keep in mind the project. And if the project doesn't have the resources to do the testing and they don't have the passion to go build 32-bit boxes to make it work, then they're probably not the right project to be doing that work. And it doesn't really matter how you feel about it. It's just the reality of human nature and how these kinds of things work. This next story, uh, I only included this in the show because uh, just the holy shit factor of it. It's really surprising. Microsoft is throwing in the towel with Edge HTML, and today it's come out that they're instead building a web browser based around Chromium, which uses Blink
1: as its rendering engine, essentially, you know, their WebKit fork. This is massive. Woo-wee! They were also (laughs) recently spotted, them being Microsoft engineers, committing code to the Chromium project to help get Google Chrome running on ARM. Perhaps some of that work will translate over to getting Anaheim running on Windows 10 on ARM 2. I don't know about that, but it is interesting. I mean, think back to when IE 6 was the was the big thing. I know. Are they? Mm-hmm. Is Microsoft done with the browser game? They're just going to ship one. You know, kind of wow. kind of phone it in. I gotta say, not particularly jazzed about another
0: Chromium based browser, but mind blown about. The end of Internet Explorer, essentially. Like, this is really it. Like, I realize Edge wasn't IE, but to me this is really quite surprising because it is a massive strategic beachhead to have one of the popular web rendering engines. But it really seems like Microsoft in all areas right now is looking at it in a very humble, practical way, and they're saying, where have we lost... Where are we just not going to win no matter how long we pay a team to work on something that we think has great battery life and great performance or whatever they want to advertise about Edge? And they had to go and have that conversation and say, we got to just throw in the towel here. We just got to ship a Chromium browser. Now, we don't really know if this is going to replace Edge fully. Maybe they're just going to swap out the ass end of Edge and never even say anything to the end user. Maybe it's only going to be available on arm versions of Windows
1: oh we don't know do we no we I mean we don't there's not a lot of there's not a lot of clarity here
0: but uh, just want to welcome Windows users uh, to the rest of the internet nice to have you and um, you can find uh, the free stickers over in that corner this next story cue the valve sound link uh, cue this cue this the what is it called the what's that valve gong or whatever cue that cue the valve gong Um, Because the Steam Link lives on on the Raspberry Pi. Last week we talked about the Steam Link hardware going away. And I got a couple of notes from several people that said I went and bought one. And then like they were totally sold
1: out. I was I almost did. I mean it was very tempting. They did were yeah? like ten bucks for a while. That's that's pretty convenient.
0: Wes, they got down to like two ninety nine Oh, really? Two
1: dollars
4: and ninety-nine
0: cents. So, anyways, there is now a beta to run the Steam Link app on your Raspberry Pi 3 and 3B Plus running Raspbian stretch.
1: It's a little bit funky. You like have you have to run it and then it downloads the full app and creates a desktop yes. shortcut and then will automatically update as needed from there, so it's not your traditional package, but sounds like it's working.
0: Yeah, well, you know, we do have a reporter on the scene. Uh,
2: let's go to him now, live, on location. Mr. Popey, what are you learning? Uh, so I tried it out on a new Pi B plus 3, whatever the new one is, the fast yeah. one, and uh, I used a Debian stretch Raspbian image that I downloaded from the Raspbian, uh, the Raspberry Pi website, chucked it on a stick, and then grabbed the Deb installed it, ran it, and then connected to another machine on my network that had Steam installed, Uh, plugged in an Xbox 360 controller into the Raspberry Pi and streamed a game directly to my Raspberry Pi from my uh, Steam machine. And it worked pretty good. It was okay. There was a few Hmm. network stutters. um, But other than that, I mean, it's beta quality, but it worked. It worked just fine.
0: How would you rate the quality of your Wi-Fi in your home? Because it seems like that's a pretty important component.
2: Yeah, uh, Wi-Fi in my house is uh, middling to shitty, um, <laughs> and uh, so that, that wouldn't have helped. But I did do the test that it does internally, and it said it was fine. Um, I didn't have a um, a super high frame rate game. I was playing Ultimate Chicken Horse, which is a puzzle game, and you know. But still, it's one of these things where you're standing on a platform, and if you're one pixel off, you fall off. So you know, it still could affect gameplay. Um, and it wasn't perfect, but like I say, it's beta quality, but it's worth trying out and could be a good opportunity to dedicate uh, Raspberry Pi to sit underneath the TV and play some games streamed from a hulking, great, loud Steam machine somewhere else in the house.
0: Yeah. Well, if this is part of the strategy, maybe um, maybe they're going to go Netflix on this. Like when they said, when they said that they're going to rely on the quote-unquote app Maybe what they really meant was full spectrum domination of all devices, like Netflix did. Like when Netflix started uh, streaming, uh, it was um, it was called Instant Watch, and it was supplemental and free if right. you had a DVD subscription, right? And then they had the Instant Watch service. Which you could watch in your web browser if you were on Windows or Mac or something. I mean, you, I mean we all remember the them. dark days. Yeah, it took years to get it on Netflix on Linux. And then there was all these different hacks and ways you could do it for years. And in in this intervening time between the DVD service and now where it's at, they launched, well, they didn't, but in partnership with Roku, they launched the Netflix box, which later became the Roku which is an entire platform now. And now everything you buy from toasters to televisions has a Netflix app built into it, at least in the States. And if Valve could go somewhere in this direction and maybe they could get pre-installed on things like the NVIDIA Shield TV or a Roku box or maybe even a smart TV if it's a decent one, then... The death of the Steam Link starts to make a little more sense, doesn't it? Because they're following the Netflix
1: model at that point, which seems to have worked. You don't have to buy a new device. You just have to install a new app on the device you already have. And I guess figure out a way to have a controller connect to it. So maybe not every device. Yeah, there
0: is that. But but really with Bluetooth, that yeah, your true. options are wider and wider. And um, I don't know about you, but I don't really feel like buying another box. I, I may have bought the next Steam Link, but... Probably not. I don't have a 4K television.
1: I mean, and that's because you're an, you're a niche person who who knows it exists and and might have considered it. It's you know. It right. seems like the discoverability of something on in an app store is a little bit better.
0: And I think people are sick and tired of buying these set top boxes and hooking up another box to their television.
1: Yeah, and then they have to get a new receiver because you have so many different things that you have to plug yeah. in to. Uh, they might be onto something here.
0: And if they can let you roll it on a few of your own devices, they integrate it into SteamOS. So if you build a Steam machine, it's just built in. You have Raspberry Pi options. All of a sudden, I'm starting to, I'm starting to like their new strategy. So we'll see where this goes. Um, and I, I think um, I kind of want to try it out. I kind of want to play around, maybe compare it to the Steam Link one day, the actual physical hardware. Why don't we uh, take a moment and say congratulations to a friend of the show, the handsome Barton George, who is celebrating with his team Six frickin' years of Sputnik. It all started in the beginning of 2012 with Barton's pitch to an internal innovation committee that they had at Dell. Like their own internal seed fund that they could use on a project internally if somebody had something good. And then Ooh. a month after the pitch, uh, uh, the the team or whoever he was pitching to seemed to like it. The committee uh, gave him the go for this, quote-unquote, exploratory project to test out the idea of a developer laptop. Just Test the waters.
1: Thankfully, I mean there was a there was an interested and supportive community. So with with enough support, people actually said that they wanted this. It became a real product. On November 29th, way back in 2012, the first Dell XPS 13 developer edition was born. Yeah. I remember the week I got to cover that in the Linux Action News or in the Linux Action Show. And man. Huge! What a big day! Dell, a uh, shipping a Linux la- like uh, for legit Linux laptop, and it was announced. And then
0: it was before the orders were available. You could, you people figured out like which Windows version you could buy that was going to be the same thing. both Broadcom wireless and yeah. But uh, now fast forward, um, they they're on they're the seventh generation of laptop. So it's been six years. They've done seven generations of that laptop, uh, shipping it with eighteen oh four by default right now. And then they've extended that to the Precision workstation line, which I just recently reviewed, which I think is a pretty killer system. And uh, I don't think they're stopping. In fact, I think they have demonstrated to the market that this is a viable consumer segment to sell to. And I personally believe it's played a part in why you see the subsystem for Linux on Windows 10 and why you see Linux capabilities on Chrome OS. And why I think ISH, or Ish, the Linux environment for iOS, is smashingly popular right now. Like, people are going crazy uh, about this. Uh, so I had a chance to chat with the developer of ISH, and it was just a quick chat. He was... Um, Fortunately, uh, very accommodating and willing to join me. And just I wanted to talk about why he's doing this. And I think it all plays a role here. I think it's all part of a bigger picture about a common Linux runtime and environment that developers want and admins and system administrators. So I I had a chance to talk to this guy. uh, His name is Theodore. And uh, Mr. West, go ahead and play our clip. So Theodore, welcome to Linux Unplugged. And congratulations on all the attention ISH is getting.
5: Yeah, it's been honestly surreal to see to see it just go from like 20 stickups stars to a few weeks later, 2000.
0: I, I feel like there's like three podcasts I listen to right now that are talking about it. So it's a Linux shell for iOS, and I thought maybe I kind of wanted to just pick your brain on uh, this crazy project. And, and also, uh, maybe we could start even lower. like don't, don't you have to emulate an entire X86 basic system to pull this off?
5: Yeah, it was, this. This took like a year and a half to get to, uh, pre- to like the stage really? where I could actually run it on an iPod on a iDevice. Wow! Um, so yeah, it was it was a big project. I mean, the the real reason I've been doing this is to like learn everything I can about um, Linux and x86 because it's just an interesting to- uh, topic to me.
0: Are you by day a Mac user? You're not a, you're not like already like an, a Linux user who's just trying to get Linux on an iOS device.
5: No, I mean I'm I'm a I'm a Mac user. I also sometimes use Linux in a VM. Um, oh, okay. I, like the like for at least six months, I was developing ish uh, under Linux, and then ported then I ported it to Mac.
0: Oh, that is really interesting. And in, and in the and the is that phase the x86 emulation?
5: That was when I was getting the x86 emulation to work. Um, uh, this was before it could at all run on an I- iPad.
0: Now is that um, is that like QMU under the hood? Like how are you doing that? It's
5: a, it's a, I wrote my own exodistic simulator for this. <laughs> oh, um, you mad man. <laughs> so, Yeah, exactly. Um, which is why it took so long. Uh,
0: <laughs> but it must've been an interesting experiment.
5: Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. QMU Q- 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 can't run on, uh, on iOS because of the restrictions of the sandbox. Cause like uh. it's doing dynamic binary translation. Um, the, the sandbox doesn't let you uh, have any executable code that didn't come with the app. Um, so it has to be done with an actual emulator of the kind that like runs each instruction with like C code. To try and make it a little faster, um, I decided that I'm gonna now write an assembly language implementation of every instruction, so that I can like uh, at the end of at the end of the assembly language gadget, I can just make a direct jump to that construction and hopefully save a little time. Uh, with decoding.
0: That's pretty clever. Um, and so the, once you got the x86 system working, you had to pick a Linux base, uh, and you went with Alpine. That's an interesting choice.
5: Yeah, that's because it is the smallest Linux distribution ever created. It's The result is that the app is um, like a three megabyte download. Um, for like right. a Linux and it includes an entire Linux distro that has a package manager and can install anything
0: that's a great point it is it's impressive and, and the only way to really get my hands on it is to go through test flight right now yeah. and I feel like that maybe we should talk about that it seems like that yeah. could potentially be the big elephant in the room is you could end up spending you know theoretically what two years on this project and then Apple just never accepts it to the app store
5: I mean that that could happen but I've already learned so much about how Linux works and about how x86 works it's it's even if that happens it's still worth it.
0: And it seems like you've struck upon a real nerve here that there's a there is a bit of a need for a command line like environment on an iOS yeah. device, especially the iPad pro.
5: yeah the, the amount of interest that I've seen on this is really kind of surprised me because like who wants to program on an iPad <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but yeah um, apparently people do because Apple has been telling them that their iPad is essentially a computer, so they want to now be able to program.
0: There's all these little edge cases where you've got a great portable system, uh, but you just need access to a command line utility. Maybe it's SSH. Maybe it's something like YouTube DL. Who knows? It's just one of these things. Everybody's got their edge case.
5: Yeah, that is true. Um there are some there are, there are plenty of like nice command line utilities that there are plenty of things I would I, I can do easily on the command line, but like on me, on an iPad I would have to go searching through the app store, maybe find some app that costs five ninety-nine.
0: I mean, you know, who am I, Theodore? But if I was sitting at Apple right now and I was looking at the market, I would be looking at the success of the Windows subsystem for Linux on Windows ten, and I would be looking at Google adding Linux app and command line capabilities to Chrome OS, which was always supposed to be the most simple OS out there. It's just nothing but a web browser, and now you yeah. can get a Debian command line. And iOS is sort of the oddball out on this.
5: Yeah, it's like the only the only thing that the only OS that doesn't have like a built-in uh, Linux or Unix-like uh, shell. Um, so yeah, I am hoping. I'm really hoping that Apple will. Uh, like, see the demand on this and realize that it's something that they should, like, think about. Like, I mean, the fact that they haven't, that they haven't uh, yanked it from TestFlight already um, is, I guess, a bit of a positive signal.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to look at it. That's what I was thinking <laughs> when I installed Like, the fact that they're doing this is is a potential signal because I hope they recognize it might not even be that people want the command line because I suppose it would never happen, right? But in theory... Apple could ship a Bash shell app that would give you access to the Unix subsystem that may be rolling around underneath iOS. But they're they're not likely going to do that, are they? And people want Linux.
5: No, I mean, that would that if they if they shift a bash shell with their with with iOS they would that would essentially be a jailbreak right <laughs>
0: yeah it would be it I I would I tell you it'd be more shocking than a lot of the other things Apple has announced it's more shocking than USB-C on the iPad Pro it would be unheard of and so I really but at the same time Theodore I have to be honest the 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 technologist in me cries a little bit that you have to construct an entire virtual machine on a mobile device to get a command line.
5: Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's kind of disappointing, honestly. It's, and it also makes it incredibly slow.
0: Well, you've done, you've gotten, you've gotten amazing performance, and like you mentioned earlier, size out of this too. I, I'm, I'm very impressed. But I, I wonder if this thing isn't going to just start growing like crazy because you must be having feature requests coming in like nuts for everybody's little edge case.
5: Oh yeah, My GitHub issues page is filled with those. Um, someone there's an there's an issue that's titled "Improve the performance." So yes, um, I saw that.
0: Yeah, and <laughs> <laughs> that's like, oh, thanks. Yeah, okay, yeah very yeah. Helpful.
5: Okay. Um. <laughs> I mean, yeah. If anyone, if one, has any brilliant ideas on how to make this faster without jailbreaking their de- their device, please tell me.
0: <laughs> I mean, really, it is just you right now. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to keep it that way? Would you want to actually make this a? I would love to have contributions. I've gotten quite a few pull requests actually
5: from people who um, want to fix this or that system call, um, and that's been that's been really great. Um, though I would of course love to have more of that.
0: And you pronounce it ish, right? So ish itself is it GPL or what is it right now?
5: It is GPL, um, GPL version three, Okay. which does probably a pretty good job of protecting against any anyone who wants to try and
0: sell it. And you're touching a lot of Linux, so that I mean, I, I think that all makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, so you are open to the idea of maybe making this a bit of a larger project. Of course, I mean, this is a really tricky thing you're doing here, Theodore. This is yeah. some seriously low level stuff. I'm really impressed. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, so I don't know if everybody could pick that up. You know what I mean? Like, that's not something that most people are going to roll in and be able to solve those problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, really, like, again, I say somebody at Apple ought to just uh, hire you up and make, it a, make this an official project. Man, I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, if people are listening right now and they're excited about perhaps getting a legitimate Linux command line on an iOS device, we've been talking iPad, but, you know, you, you can run it on a, on a phone too, right? Yeah, it, it works perfectly fine there. Or even a touch. Yeah, so uh, how can people support you?
5: The best way to support to support this the development of this thing is to like go to GitHub, find some program that doesn't work, and take a shot at fixing it yourself. And um, that is like probably the most valuable thing you can do to help this project out. Um, you can also give me money. Um, I'm not going to say no. I don't want your money, um, but that will motivate me to keep working on it. But not be as motivating as seeing people who. Care about it enough to um, take take time to write code.
0: Yeah, and I, I noticed in a couple a couple of times, it's it's really just changing how how the application does input or output. Like it's not major code development to get individual apps working. There
5: are so many programs where
0: the fix yeah, is like one a, line of code. Yeah. <laughs> well, Theodore, please keep up the great work. Uh, you're making this you're making these devices more valuable, and I really appreciate your hard work. Thank you for coming on the show, and uh, let's chat in the future. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank thank you for inviting me on. Now, you can go get your hands on this if he has enough test pilot licenses still available. I don't really understand how that system works, but we'll have a link to his website uh, in the show notes at com slash, what is this, 278. So just uh, go there and uh, get a link to that. And I think this is a really nice idea that I'd, I'd really be um, bummed if uh, – Apple were to shut this down, because I think a lot of us have, like, an old iPad somewhere floating around that'd be pretty cool to be able to pull up a Linux terminal on.
1: Yeah, I mean, and he's gone to such lengths to, to yeah. try to be compliant. You know, it's really, it's not trying to jailbreak. It's not trying to flout Apple's rules. It's just something people want to use computers for.
0: Well, and and um, I asked him, why not just use QMU or something? Why, why did you build an entire x86 virtual <laughs> right. machine? Like... Uh, I mean, hell of a project, but like, why? And he, he see, the answer was so obvious that when I asked it, 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 it made me feel like an idiot. You, you can't run QMU on the, on the A12X, right? You're not going to be able to run any virtualizer on the market right now on the Apple A series processors. You got to build for those, for those chips basically. And so that's what he's been doing for the last year.
1: <laughs> I is, mean, it does sound like a great project.
0: Uh, Talk about a passion project, right? I mean, that's one of the things. And then to turn around and release it all as GPL. If you take away the iOS, just he's been building a virtual machine for a very specialized series of ARM processors that millions of people have, and he's GPLing it all. That's awesome. I think it is really cool. I think that is I think that's a pretty neat story. So, thank you to Theodore for coming on the show and telling us about it. Now, let's shift gears and talk about Android, but maybe not Android so much in your pocket, but Android in the cloud. Now, Simon on the Ubuntu blog has posted a really interesting rundown of how they are enabling Android to run on Amazon's EC2 A1 instances. Now those A1 instances are them new fancy uh, um, AMD, or I'm sorry, it was almost AMD. It was they're, almost. Uh, ARM processors. Yeah, this is an interesting story though, Wes. Why don't you tell us the story? Well, what we'll, little side tangent that Amazon just launched ARM servers, but they were almost. They were almost AMD ARM servers.
1: Yeah, up until 2015, Amazon and AMD were working together on a 64-bit ARM server-grade processor to to deploy. I mean, of course, they want them everywhere in their data centers. Uh, It's tough to get that to work. It was a big deal, and of course, the project fell apart when, according to one well-placed source, AMD failed at meeting all of Amazon's performance requirements. Ouch. Yeah, in classic Amazon style, they went out and actually bought someone who had already licensed from ARM, the system-on-a-chip designer, and a Perna Labs. And then they just put that team to work building all the things they wanted, right? Internet of Things gateways, the Nitro chipset that they're using. That's for handling network and storage tasks that uh, back EC2 machines. So they've already got a lot going on, and now they've got this team of talented people who are designing chips. They've got it right
0: in-house. So this last week or so, Amazon announced these, uh, these new rigs, these A1 instances that use the custom AWS Graviton processor based on the ARM architecture. And when you read through this blog post that's up um, on Canonical's blog, uh, blog blog.ubuntu.com, they talk about using LXD containers to stream Android games from an EC2 instance to a mobile phone over the internet. And they are running a genuine Android environment and Android applications in the cloud and then streaming the results down to the phone. So uh, I dialed up our, uh, our um, go-to uh, ARM expert, Mr. Wimpress. No, uh, <laughs> Wimpy, you were actually the one that linked this to me originally. I, I didn't see this until you linked it to me. So I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about some of this. Like, this seems really far out there. Over a mobile network and all of that, how is this even possible?
4: Yeah, so this is um, demonstrating a number of the technologies that, um, canonical and Ubuntu have on offer to sort of model scale out workloads in the cloud and then deploy that stack very very quickly so it uses maz which is metal as a service and juju which is the orchestration component and then lexd containers which are containers of all of these android instances so it's kind of proving out all of this capability and and the applications that run inside those lexd containers are all snaps and what have you (laughs) so it's kind of demonstrating the whole the whole product suite working together right but the reason that we have this capability is there are actually customers that are interested in running android in the cloud and and this is something that we're you know actively working on and it's unfortunate simon um due to time zones wasn't able to to join us this evening but he's the the tech lead behind this particular um group of technologies
0: now i'm struggling to understand the use case for Android in the cloud. I get game streaming, but I don't quite see how... Game streaming seems like it would be at its fundamental weakness over a mobile network. There's so many latency issues and variables.
4: There's a couple of things there. So game streaming is certainly one of the use cases. And when you talk about game streaming, most people think about streaming H.264 video, you know, um, a bit like the Steam Link does that we were talking about earlier on the Raspberry Pi app, for example. Um, the technologies here can do one of two things. They can stream H.264 video, or they can stream uh, the OpenGL commands. So in the demonstration uh, that's in the video, in the blog post, that's actually streaming the OpenGL commands from the cloud to the client device. So it's rendered client-side using the GPU capabilities on the device. So that's one kind of distinction. Now, the other reason is, is that why game streaming is attractive to game developers is when you're targeting Android, you have a number of android api versions that you can target and depending on your generation of android device that's on the client depends whether or not that client has access to that game if you have your game or your application deployed in the cloud against a known api version it doesn't actually matter what the client version of android is because now you're doing the The Mm -hmm. compute in the cloud, and you're just streaming um, the visuals down to the the client device. Mm -hmm. So you can narrow where you um, focus your development effort to, you know, a known API um, constraint. But then you've also got like CI and unit testing and stuff like that, like spin up a thousand Android instances to test it against various versions. Right, exactly so. You know, if you want to do testing at scale, having a hundred or a thousand devices is invisible, impractical. But if you want to spin up dozens, tens, Hundreds, thousands of of um, uh, instances in the cloud to run your automated um, tests. Then that's now something that you can do, you know, relatively inexpensively.
0: Yeah, that seems like it could be a pretty significant use case. Is development testing?
4: Yeah, and and the other use case is if you have a sensitive application, uh, let's say a banking application. If you have that in the cloud, then it can't be tampered with on the local device. So if you stream it from the cloud, you know, it's it's um, sandboxed away from the users of the application, so you can't pull it apart and reverse engineer it. Silent Drifter,
0: were you thinking along the lines of development testing when you said you can see a couple of use cases?
3: Part of it was development testing, but my other thought was it would also be really nice, especially where there's so much hype right now about the idea of convergence, that it would be really nice to be able to put all of that heavy computation in the cloud. And then you can offer a lot more services on the application of your phone, even though it's all running, you're just kind of sending off the data to have it do the heavy crunching for you.
0: Right. I I could definitely see that as well. I, I think this is a pretty cool demonstration. And when you if you want to look at the video, it's, it's about two minutes long, and it's embedded in the blog post that we'll have linked. And one of the nice things is it's a single juju command to set up the entire Android environment, the containers and all of it. And so yeah. it is a Like Wimpy was saying, it's a pretty good demonstration of the stack.
4: Yeah, and all of the network orchestration that goes on behind it. And there's another potential upside there for games developers. If you've got um, an MMO, if you have that now deployed in the cloud and streamed down to the client, you can have the um, the high-speed backbone network infrastructure that exists in these public cloud providers uh, brokering the network interactions between these multiple instances of these games rather than over your cellular network. So hopefully less lag and, you know, more, um, low latency game interactions. And I just realized like if it's an MO, you have also got instant anti cheat just like with the banking app, you got anti cheat because in the cloud right. and the user can't tamper with it. Exactly. Yeah. True. It's just, True. just like the banking application, you can't tamper with the local app because there is no local app. It's one way to solve the
0: Android fragmentation problem, but uh, <laughs> yes. I think I think the thing that impresses me the most is the capability of streaming the OpenGL commands down to the client and then have the rendering done on the local GPU. That's pretty slick.
4: Yeah, that's pretty neat. Simon's a clever guy. Uh, maybe maybe sometime soon he'll uh, he'll be able to come on here and talk to you about yeah. this in. in oh, more I would def- love that. But at the moment, this is this is a developing technology. Uh, we're working alongside a few sort of um, business partners in a couple of different areas and watch this space for, for more news about this. And uh, mm. hopefully it'll come to a cloud near you soon.
0: Have you had this problem with your external GPUs that I've run into where SystemD UDev consumes an entire core and it just sits there and runs one of your cores non-stops after you boot if you boot up without your NVIDIA graphics card connected? Have you had this? I have not. Oh, well, I have <laughs> as a result of trying out the GPU dock. And it was it was causing issues with my audio because of the CPU. Um, we were really scratching our heads about this. Yeah, it started really with we thought we were having jack audio issues where Jack was dropping audio. And we started going through this like troubleshooting and troubleshooting process. And it wasn't until I got into Texas and was setting up and I had just bailed on jack audio that I realized I still had a problem. And then I had to start troubleshooting what was going on. And I discovered... System D, udev D, consuming 100% of my CPU. Now, there is um, bugs everywhere about this, including um, there is a there is a bug on um, Launchpad. There's a bug on the Manjaro tracker. I have a couple linked in the show notes. And um, it seems to be a bit tricky, and it doesn't actually seem to be restricted to just NVIDIA cards, oh. although they do appear to be the largest offender, Um, Bluetooth chipsets have caused this issue and audio chipsets have caused this issue. And in short, what it really is, is it's system to UDEV trying to connect to devices and get the right driver set up and all of these things. And then it's failing to do so because it can't find the device, so it can't load the driver. And then it gets caught in a loop. And it just creates um, log noise forever. And uh, it starts with... um, the nvidia core is being initialized and then it gives it a device number and then it says no nvidia graphics driver adapter found then the next line in the log is we've unregistered the nvlink core major device number and then it says the sig- signature is not signed. Then it says the core is being initialized. Then it says the adapter can't be found. And then it says it's being deinitialized. And then it gives an error message. And then UDev gives an error message. And then the whole process rinse and repeats over and over again for as fast as one of your CPU cores can possibly facilitate it. And it'll make your laptop heat uh, heat up. It'll drain your battery life. It's It was really kind of awful. And... Um, I feel like there's probably several ways to fix this. Obviously, one is I could just get rid of the NVIDIA driver. Um, But that's sort of a uh, Hail Mary, would prefer to avoid that solution. I mean,
1: you're trying to use it, right? Because you have the dock. That's the point.
0: Right. Now, when I'm traveling and I'm not hooked up to the dock at the moment, I need it to be reliable. And it can't be going and mucking up my audio. So I did a temporary workaround just to get systemd udev under control. And that was just basically doing a system CTL stop systemd udev and then starting it again. And if you stop and start it after you've booted, it behaves itself. It's just simply after a cold boot, and you haven't stopped and started it, it just goes nuts. And um, you can see different forum posts on the internet where people are trying to figure this out, like several about Bluetooth adapters, and uh, it's just essentially across every distro that seems to have a 4.15 or later kernel. And... um, it doesn't, it doesn't appear to impact everybody, but it, it is an issue. And I was really trying to figure out, like, why is my audio so choppy? What is going on? And when I looked at it and realized it was because of SystemD, UDev eating up a bunch of uh, CPU, I thought, you know what, the audience might have a way for me to have my cake and eat it too, where I can still have the driver installed, but maybe I run a script, I don't know, something, some workaround where uh, I don't have to do this hacky shutting down of SystemD, UDev. So if you know, if you got an idea, tweet me at Elias. Or slash contact
4: do you use the audio interface in the dock
0: um yes i do when it is hooked up yeah because i have larger okay. speakers that are plugged into the dock yeah
4: fine i shall say no more <laughs> oh well i'll tell you what for, for the purposes of completeness in case anyone is listening to this and thinking "Ah, oh, this is my problem i have multiple audio interfaces and i don't use the one in the dock ever and i actually have that interface completely turned off which is probably uh. why I don't see this issue because Mm. I've only ever got one audio interface that's actually enabled.
0: Well, see, I figure this is going to become a larger problem as Thunderbolt 3 is on more and more Mm -hmm. systems and more and more people try external GPUs or external docks. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to get the GPU dock was to, to actually very much try to discover if something like this would happen. Um, so that way I could come back on here and say, maybe don't do it yet. Or if you do, this is one of the things you may potentially run into. And, uh, of course I was really cursing that decision when I was trying to set up for land and I, I had 20 minutes oh, gosh. to get on air and I thought <laughs> to myself, why the hell did I make myself a guinea pig on this? Um, but I feel like, I feel like it's going to be something that gets wider and wider adoption. So we got to figure this stuff out now. And, uh, I bet there's somebody out there who already has. So let me know but before we get out of here this week we got to talk about clear linux which seems to be getting more and more hype more and more buzz more and more people talking about it and i guess a lot of us have always thought of it as something that's for containers or something that intel is hoping takes off in the server industry uh, because it's it's a it's a distribution that has traditionally focused on security and performance it's got a rolling release model and it is really built for customization. In a sense, they look at it as you fork your own version of Clear Linux and build it, or they have, they have some pre-built versions for you. Uh, and so uh, I wanted to take a deep dive into Clear Linux for a little bit in this episode, and uh, Wes had a chance to try it out, and I had a chance to go dig, dig into some of their docs and, and uh, watch a few talks, and thought maybe we could talk a little about Clear Linux. So, um, Mr. Wes, let's start with your setup, your, your Clear Linux experience.
1: You know, Clear linux it's in a very interesting stage of evolution. You're absolutely right. There's a lot of focus on this, like, well-engineered and architected distribution that works well if you have these complicated container workloads in the cloud. And I think the technical merits of ClearLinux are some of the things that really stands out. They have a lot of blog posts about it. It's very well communicated. They've even got this great how to clear tutorial up on GitHub that kind of teaches you the unique concepts of things like bundles and mixes that that actually build up how clear Linux forms package sets. So that's one of the key things is software is shipped in these bundles.
0: And the way they do that is you put everything into a bundle and all of the, the dependencies for that bundle are resolved at build time on the server not on the client at install time. So you don't have like a package manager that's figuring out all the dependencies. When you install that bundle, they've figured those all out server-side. It's kind of similar to package groups in in other distributions. But then one of the things they do to kind of turn this up to 11 is get ready for this, kids, is they turn on auto-update by default. And that is generally because they have a they have a really strict security turnaround policy where Uh, they have a a team policy of patching a vulnerability within 24 hours of a fix being available. 24 hours to get that fix turned around. So they turn on the automatic updates, which generally works out to be about nine releases per week, about twice per business day. There's a batch of what are generally security updates for Clear Linux.
1: I mean, it's an interesting sort of posture. It does seem very well engineered. They've thought about it. They want it to be robust. There's been a lot of effort put into that. Before, to even get any of this, if you're going to try it, it's it's worked as a desktop for a long time. Originally, that was with XFCE. They've been transitioning to Gnome Shell, so that's what I tested out. And they're starting to roll out support for KDE. But, But actually, To get to that experience, you had to use their long-standing text-based installer. It's pretty simple, but it required a working internet connection, and it didn't offer a lot of customizations around RAID or encryption or any of that sort of fancy stuff that people might want. These days, there's now a beta, a desktop beta, and, you know, actually it's pretty nice. It boots right up pretty quick. One thing I will say is it works offline, but it is chunky. It's like a solid 8 gigs after you extract it and takes quite a long time to write to that flash drive. Once you get into it, you've still got a text-based installer UI, but it's honestly, it's a pretty well-engineered Curses interface. Um, I'm a stickler for how to configure disks, and I didn't find the Clear Linux OS installer's disk management mm-hmm. really the best. It did it did kind of mess up the first time I tried it, and <laughs> there could just be. Thankfully, I mean, it was on a test system, so it's fine. Uh, but that could have that could have you know I was trying to put it on one partition, and it just rewrote the whole partition table on me, which I didn't expect. And it doesn't provide you a lot of prompts for things like once you've set up a root partition and a boot partition, then it'll let you install, but. I, I had mistakenly put slash boot slash EFI as the mount point. It didn't tell me anything. It just it just didn't let me hit the confirm button. There was no error message anywhere. So you have to be a little bit experienced to know what you're doing. So did you lose all the other partitions on that drive? Not all of them or, you know, either that or just reset up maybe a couple of them. Hmm. It was definitely a different <laughs> disk layout when I rebooted and not what I expected. <laughs> But you know uh, it is lean and mean it works really well it get it's pretty easy to go configure your mixes and get everything like what software you want how you want it to run that part was pretty smooth yeah their mixes is
0: kind of where i was going with that like you can you you get your own mix of cleared linux um is kind of how they look at it and so it's 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 fascinating the way they've kind of um made that distinguish like once you once you kind of set it up it's your own it's your own os uh, in a way um and then they have this stateless design that they call it and what that really kind of essentially means is they put default fully functional configs for when you install software in slash user. So if you were to, you know, start up that service or whatever, in theory, it should be ready to go, fully functional, not a half setup config where you have to go like define the port and things like that. But what's what's interesting is those go in slash USR. You can put your own overrides in slash Etsy. Or like in the home of a user account, it's another place you know in your in your in your home folder. That's not too unusual. But the cool part is, you can go in and just wipe out all of those Etsy configs. Just go rm them. Just get rid of them. And what you're essentially doing is you're just setting the system back to defaults. You can just it's essentially like hitting the, def, the reset button, and it's a default clear Linux config because they
1: still have all of the original configs in slash usr. That's one of those things is they really they're doing things differently um, and and not not really like any other distro I mean you know Arch Arch was this own new wellspring that was building things themselves but Clear Linux clearly has different goals it's it's minimalist in some ways but in, in a lot of other ways they they're going above and beyond right things like their fancy clear boot manager that's long been needed and no one else has pursued that path yeah, this is an interesting piece that I don't really understand a lot
0: about the the clear the Clear Linux boot manager. I do remember talking to Ike about it ages ago. Um, so I think and I think he worked on it to a degree, uh, and he may be back there working on it again. It sounds like I don't know if this is the part. I don't know if this is the role he's he's playing there. But uh, this was something that was kind of coveted by other distributions for a bit, and I never really fully understood why, other than it was supposedly going to make system updates like kernel updates rock solid.
1: Yeah, I mean, a system layered on top of of all the other stuff that's going on at boot to try to make sure that things wouldn't fail, that it was going to have a solid, reliable rollback. Um, and it really also embraced UEFI. So that's another area where they they are targeting a lot of more modern things. They target, you know, it's very well optimized for recent Intel processors. A lot of Faradix mm-hmm. benchmarks keep showing that. So that's another area yeah. where, um, you know, people are doing comparisons and seeing like, Oh, they've spent yeah. a lot of time. They're doing non-trivial extra patches to glibc. Sometimes they're they're really looking at this, and I don't I don't think it gets a lot of attention. You know, it might it might see some cloud workload, but if you're a power user, that might be something you want. Yeah. So they
0: talk a little bit about how they they build the whole stack, sort of optimized for the IA processor architecture, the Intel processor architecture. And they talk about one of the things that they've really focused on is anything that they execute that has a series of dependencies, they've gone down that dependency tree and optimized all of that stuff too, um, because you know, they're they're Intel, right? So why not make it as badass as possible? Why not make a linux that that really shows your OS? Um, and then they, they're combining that with this solid update where they have this clear Linux boot manager that's supposed to protect you from uh, kernel upgrades. They have that stateless OS where it's easy to revert, revert, and then they have this mixes concept where, in their words, you compose an OS for your specific use case. They, they, they view it as your own Linux in a way that they're just sort of upstreaming.
1: You've also now got, you know, you've got Flatpak there. So uh, if you if you rely on applications oh. provided by Flatpak, uh, that's another route for software availability.
0: Did you give that a go? Did you try installing any apps via Flatpak?
1: Oh yeah, I mean it, it works great. They've already provided some apps that were packaged like it's it's installed on the live so and everything. Really?
0: Really? So how would you describe the experience of using the Gnome Shell desktop and just clear Linux as a
1: desktop vehicle? Not bad. I mean, it's not super far deviated from GNOME defaults. Um, honestly, though, I think they've done, like, the website looks good. A lot of the experience is well thought out. Uh, the the background images and some of the theme aspects. Really, I mean, it's, it's kind of just a, a plain... Gnome desktop. So, if you want that, if you just want to kind of get to work, you want a a, a lean, well-architected, technically thought-out distribution. I think that's probably the space right now that it's playing. It's not going to be for someone who wants to try just you know any old Linux distribution. If you have to, you have to want to work to to get to Clear Linux. But they're clearly <laughs> making strides to make that easy. Yeah. My question. I think my main question is. Is why? Like what's the I wanna hear more from the team behind Clear Linux about, about their target audience. Is this for developers who are using it for server workloads and they wanna run the same machine, or is there a wider applicability? You gotta you gotta wonder if
0: um, maybe they have eyes on the on the workstation. Why shouldn't Intel's own version of Linux be the premier operating system for an Intel based workstation? Seems like that's that's a slam dunk. You you know, if anybody's going to make an OS that really makes their own hardware shine, it should be them. And Linux is a perfectly reasonable workstation desktop that has been proven successful in many markets that buy high-end CPUs. I, I kind of see some logic to it, I think. But I could just be kind of hope casting. I think I just made that up.
1: You know, I, I, I could see it if if we had the software we need, if we got that all worked out, it might make a nice studio machine.
0: Mm, yeah, like or, uh, yeah, like the recording system, something like that. I think so. I think so. Well, uh, thanks for kicking the tires on. I found the, I found the deep dive to be pretty interesting, too. Like, the, I wondered before we went into this episode, I thought, well, what is it that really makes Clear Linux cool? Because I keep hearing cool stuff from the audience. Like, people love it. And I'm like, well, what is it? And there is some really different stuff there. There is some really different thinking. Like, I mean... Nine releases a week, holy crap! <laughs> I, mean, it, I mean, it's rolling for sure. Like that's that's a pretty intense uh, release schedule.
1: You're, you're absolutely right, and I think re- regardless of if, if Clear Linux really takes off on the desktop or or not, for whatever value of, of what that means. It's one of those distributions that other people in this space can learn from. They're they're pioneering new approaches that I think will make all distributions better over the long term.
0: Ooh, I like that, Wes. I like that. Well, we'll have links to Clear Linux if you want to give it a go, try it out. They just had a new version. We talked about it in this week's Linux Action News, and uh, one of the one of the quote unquote features would be this new desktop live image that uh, Wes talked about, as well as that. Plasma version they're working on now, which, you know, it gets us excited here. So, uh, yeah. Additional coverage in Linux Action News as well as links to Clear Linux in the show notes. A pretty pretty neat-looking distribution. Intel's trying to actually do something different there, and, and you got to respect. you got to respect that. Well, Mr. West, that brings us to the end of this week's Unplugged. Thank you to Wimpy and Popey for joining us. Go check them out at the Ubuntu podcast, which uh, rumor has it, another one will be out this week. Hey, yo! And, uh, Another great episode from those guys, I'm sure. And uh, go get more Wes Payne at TechSnap.Systems. Wes and I do a System Admin Systems Network and Administration podcast. That's what the SNAP stands for. Over there at TechSnap.Systems. And a reminder, we have our special recordings coming up soon. Our, Our Hope Casting, my new term, and our Predictions episode the day after Christmas, so December 26th and the day after new Year's, so january 2nd we're recording one day later and we're doing a special edition and we'd love to have you join our virtual lug for that and uh, get your predictions in and your hope casting but that's all for this week's episode thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you back here next tuesday (laughs) So I'm doing a uh, ugly sweater party tonight, going to an ugly sweater party, and I, uh, I'm i not going to lie, I took the easy route, and I went on Amazon, and I I just searched for ugly sweater. It's a whole product category now, and there's a lot of ugly sweaters, and the one I got is like a polyester thick shirt. I don't really feel like it's a sweater. Like I'm worried I'm going to get called out. That I didn't know because I got it off Amazon.
1: Thick shirt? Is, that a, is this a technical term now? I don't know how to put it, Wes. <laughs> it feels like
0: a thick, poly- it like feels like multi-layer polyester shirt. I don't know how to describe it, but it's very gaudy. It's very ugly. <laughs> oh, my God. And I, I rush shipped it on Amazon so that way I'd have it for the trip. So, like, there I am, like, just with a bag. Because I, I, I have the one-bag rule, just a carry-on, one carry-on. And not even two, you know, a carry-on and a bag, just – anyways – so I'm stuffing this stupid, ugly sweater into the backpack, and I'm just looking at this thing going, what am I doing? And uh, and uh, I forgot it at the hotel. No. So I run back to the hotel, grab my ugly sweater, and then race off to the ugly sweater party.